Hey, this is Tim. Thanks so much for listening. This episode of Renaissance Man and the next are focused on the topic of opera, specifically Philip Brunel's 17-year tenure as music director at Center Opera, which later became Minnesota Opera. It's a fascinating journey akin to today's technology startups, filled with lots of musical entrepreneurialism. We'll release part two of Philip's opera journey soon. If you've got questions, please send us an email to renaissancemanpodcast at gmail.com. That's renaissancemanpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you have a moment, please rate this podcast on iTunes. It really helps attract a broader audience. And if you're feeling especially generous, please share this podcast with your friends. Your word of mouth is the highest praise we can ask for. And now, on with Renaissance Man. Hello, you're listening to Renaissance Man, a podcast featuring my father, Philip Brunel, as he talks about the world of music. Okay. Um, Opera, the topic is opera. Let's just, let's start from the kind of the furthest distance and presume our listeners uh, are unaware. What is opera? In its simplest form, opera is a play in which you sing all the words and you stage it, you act it. So an oratorio is really an opera standing still. Mm. An opera then adds the element of staging. Mm -hmm. How much staging depends, of course, on the singer and the director. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And, and how is that different than musical theater? Musical theater um, has music, is staged, but it also has spoken texts in it. Mm-hmm. So it kind it's it would be more like operetta. Operetta had both um, singing and speaking involved and that's what music theater has. Then there are many kinds of, you know, special reasons why it's called that and certain pieces and there are of course even op- there are music theater pieces that are totally sung. Mm-hmm. But there's a it, just a different kind of style mm-hmm. about the music that's in a music theater piece than that would be in an opera. And what's the whole historical context? Where, where did opera come from? Opera started in the late 1500s in Italy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first idea, the, the first important composer of opera was Monteverdi. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole idea that, that what had been, before that there had course been all kinds of music there and, had and been theater and theater absolutely but then suddenly it was put together as the these words are now not only set to music but they're going to be acted mm-hmm. i'm sure the acting was a gesture mm-hmm. here or there right. but it started really when um, monteverdi i mean his most famous opera uh, was an opera called the Coronation of Popea, mm-hmm. and uh, 
it was, uh, I mean, and it still is performed. It's a beautiful piece. When I was at Minnesota Opera, we did it. Yeah. And uh, it's a lovely piece. But it sort of set the, the tone, and, and then from there on, mm -hmm. it spread to other countries, and now it's all over the world. Okay. Well, uh, we got a question via Twitter from uh, Christopher Fulton, who uh, works at the Cantata Singers. And so his question is, what is modern North American opera? Is that, can that be defined? Or what is American opera? I think you could say it, it's in today's world, every composer, you know, in the 19th century, you could kind of hear a style of music. You might hear something and say, oh, that's got to be Verdi. Mm -hmm. It feels like Verdi. And then there were composers who kind of emulated Verdi and went from there. In our own time, Every composer is an individual com mm -hmm. sound, and so there's not really an American sound. There was an American sound in the 19, I would say, 30s, 40s, 50s, but in today's world, there mm -hmm. is what would you, the way you'd say American opera would be, it's sung in English. Yeah. Now, obviously not every opera is, but most American composed operas are sung in English. So if you think of all the composers who live today, who wrote operas, they're all pretty much people who were writing, whether it's Dominic Argento, whether it's Jake Heggie, Giancarlo Minotti, Ned Roram, Howard Hansen, going back. But I mean, they're all, they all wrote in English. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the what's been the influence of musical theater and even like popular music on opera? Well, what music theater has done to opera is to kind of um, make people sit up and say, "Ooh, you know, I can be I can be more experimental. Mm. I can do more things. Uh, you might think of having an opera that's because of what music theater has done. It might have, for instance, a lot more dance to it. It might have a much more unusual scenic background. Mm -hmm. It might have visuals that are video. I mean, there all kinds of things could happen because music theater sort of pushed wider the boundaries of what you wanted to see and hear on stage. Okay. So uh, we've talked about what established what is opera. So then it flows, what is an opera company? An opera company can, can be five people or 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. It depends on what you want to try to do. So an opera company can be a small group of people who come together because they want to produce an opera. Right. And maybe they take on multiple roles. They are, let's say they're all, five of them are singers, but one will serve as the director yeah. and somebody else will serve as uh, the business manager. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you could have a small one. Then you can get to something as large as the Metropolitan Opera with, you know, more than, you know, a thousand people. Lots of specialists. Very much so. These are people in the costume department, in the marketing, in the ticketing, in the orchestra, in the chorus, in the coaching of the singers. Uh, I mean, it could be just, it's huge. And mm -hmm. then it just, again, depends on the scope of 
opera that you want to produce, how big a piece it's going to be, um, or how intimate it's going to be. And that will also depend a lot on the size of the stage and the size of the auditorium for getting the sound out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how did you... We had talked, you know, in episode one about your musical education and how you, you know, arrived at your various uh, career points. Um, but wh- so what was your first opera that you saw that you were an audience member of? I, in high school, the Metropolitan Opera mm-hmm. used to come to... They used um, to tour. They used to tour. They came to Northrop Auditorium. And the first opera I remember seeing, I brought my mother to. Yeah. We saw Wagner, De Meistersinger. Wow. And De Meistersinger, a uh, fantastic opera. It's about four hours long. And at the end of it, I can still remember, I said to my mother, wasn't that fantastic? I could just sit here and s- see it all again. And she said, well... Uh, maybe on another day. I don't think I want to stay for another four hours, but I loved it. Yeah. That was the first one. Yeah. Then I went to the University of Minnesota, and very first, I, you know, of course, I was a pianist, and they were doing, uh, in the music theater department, they were doing an Offenbach opera, really an operetta, and I was the accompanist, and I loved doing that. And mm. then right away, Paul Knowles, who was head of the opera workshop program, Mm -hmm. asked me if I wouldn't like to accompany. And so I accompanied uh, Cosi Fantute. Mm -hmm. And then he he said, oh, we need a conductor. And I went, great. So Mm -hmm. I just started conducting the operas there. You were in the right place at the right time. I was in the right. That is so often true of uh, people in many, many lines of work. Okay, so your 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 first conducting opera conducting experience right. was in, was at the University of Minnesota, and then at the same time, I was so fortunate because one of the classes that was offered at the university was opera history, taught by Dominic Argento, and if you want to take opera history, you want to take it if you can from a professor who's also an opera composer because you learn the ins and outs of what an opera is and with a person like Argento you learned right away which composers he admired Mm. and which he really had no time for.
Okay, I want to jump ahead now. Uh, you were in school in 61. Let's jump ahead to 1966 or so. Um, you know, and as I understand it, um, the Walker Arts Center had developed Center Opera. Uh, it was started by Martin Friedman. Okay. It was his idea, who was the, the head of the Walker Arts Center, who thought they should have uh, an adjunct to modern art and have modern opera produced and do new operas and not only perform them, but perhaps that would be where you'd find a scenic artist who could design the set so there was an interesting correlation with the mm -hmm. Walker Art Center and Center Opera. So we can thank Martin Friedman for for the, starting it the and then John Opera. Ludwig was the first director mm -hmm. and along with him uh, manager and the first um, one of the first uh, directors was a man named John Owen Scrimger. Okay. And then several years later right. Wesley Balk became the stage director of the opera. Yeah, and so I was talking with Vern Sutton about his experiences with From Center day opera. one. From day one. And and he talked about he was in Italy in 66, 67, came back, and the company had split up with Walker Art Center, had become this idea of Minnesota opera. Not yet. It was still called Center so, Opera. And, and um, they had hired a company of singers, which right. was sort of a departure from... Uh, this notion of community singers, um, and and so what I'm trying to understand is uh, first off, how did they find you? Because there there had been a guy, um, Tom Nee was Tom, the Tom Nee was the was the conductor before me, and then he left. Right. Um, so what year is this, and how do Wesley and and all these folks find you, and then make the offer for you to join? Center Opera. So, in 1969, maybe 68, uh, the Metropolitan Opera, as they did, came, and I was, I got a phone call, and this man named George Schick, who was the associate conductor, he would be the guy who would go on tour, and if anybody, if a conductor got sick, he could step in because he knew every single opera perfectly. And he called me and said, Mr. Brunel, I am calling about your audition. And I went, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, your audition to come to New York to the Metropolitan Opera with the Rockefeller uh, conducting program. I, I said, I, I, I don't know what this is. Uh, well, it's okay. Now, your audition is tomorrow. And uh, I went, okay. And I said, what do you want me to prepare? I want uh, the quintet from Carmen. I want the second act of Aida. And I want uh, the first act of Butterfly. And I went, okay. So I brought the scores. And what he wanted me to do was sit at the piano, play the accompaniment, and pretend as if the singers involved were right there, and I was cueing them. So I finished my audition, and he said, very good. In two weeks, I see you in New York. I said, um, actually, I'm in the Minnesota Orchestra, and I, I'm not sure I can get up. I'm sure you will work this out. And I went, okay. So I did get... Well, hold on a second. Who put you up for this? I didn't know. 
And until I got back, I didn't know. I spent the summer studying all these operas with these singers and with George Schick. It was fantastic. And I got back and John Ludwig called me up and said, we're very glad that we nominated you for this Rockefeller program, which is the first I knew this. And then he said, and we would like you to become music director of Center Opera at those days. I went, wow. So I quit the orchestra and went with the opera. Okay, okay. So <laughs> it's, it's quite fascinating. And this is a phone call. Yep. Right. You must remember that in the days of now where social media and email, you know, you reach out. The fact that you were home and the phone rings and it's some guy in New York with this opportunity that you've never heard of. Exactly. Did you even know about the Rockefeller conducting program? No. And it was only offered one year and it was the year I was there. <laughs> Who else was in the program with you? There were seven other young conductors. Um, let's see. There were eight of us. Six were from New York City. And the other was from San Francisco, so there yeah. were there were eight of us uh, involved. And you you spent the summer studying opera every day with George Schick at the Met. And there's things. Wow, huh? And the whole idea was that when you look at an opera score, you realize that an opera score um, there are many little there's a lot of freedom that singers take with arias, none of which is written in the score. Mm -hmm. Little fermata, little running faster here, little pause, all these things, none of it's in, but it's part of tradition. Mm. So his role was to, I want to teach you the tradition of the opera. Mm. And so you took your score, you were marking as you yeah. went through, and then each of us was at the piano accompanying, mm -hmm. and you could stay at the keyboard accompanying until you made one mistake and then he would just say next and then the next person came so <laughs> it helped to be a, a perfectionist at the keyboard because yeah. then you got to be there and get more personal training otherwise you were observing others yeah. it was all fantastic it was yeah. fantastic i still have all these scores and, and the the people that you were in this program with are they out in the world or yes uh one of them uh, coaches with san francisco opera several others were with new york city opera one with the mets several yeah. went to europe oh yeah, yeah. But, so john ludwig signs you up for this thing and you have no idea you go do this program and it's also you so you you took a leave from i took a leave from minnesota orchestra yeah so, but to back up you at the time were the the youngest. I was, I was I was the youngest member of the orchestra. I played piano and percussion. Mm -hmm. And you you go to who was the conductor at the time? Who'd you go Skorbacheski. to? Oh no, I went to the manager of the orchestra because he was the one that you signed your contract with. So. Right. I said, oh, oh, by the way, I need to take the summer off. Right. What did he say? He said no, <laughs> and I said, well. And I saw this great opportunity. I said, well, then I quit. And then he said, well, if it means that much, okay, I'll give you a leave. So when I came back, I stayed with the orchestra one more season mm -hmm. while I, because just beginning at the opera, and then I quit after that. Okay. All right. Quite a story. Um, I don't think you knew that. I, I didn't know that. That's why, why I asked. Um, so, so Wes, John and Wesley essentially had an idea about you. I guess. Mm -hmm. 
and then decided, well, we'll see if he can survive this thing out in New York, mm-hmm. which you did. And they're like, oh, great, we've, we've identified our, our guy. So you come back and they make an offer. We want you to come join. What were they asking you to join? They were asking me to become the conductor at Center Opera. And in those days, we did several productions a year. So it wasn't but, a full-time job. Okay. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to get to the structure of it. So this is 68-ish? 69. Okay. 70. And so there was a company of local singers mm-hmm. that came together, depending, again, what roles there were. And in addition, um, if there was some special role that they didn't have someone local, they might bring in one singer mm-hmm. to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. But, that, okay, so that structure... Um, uh, of the company was the it was the Minnesota Opera, um, the Minnesota Opera uh, Ensemble or yeah. something like that. But was that unusual at the time? Because is this it country? T- yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. So Very unusual. Nineteen sixty nine, and you're essentially paying for people to be on call to be a part of a company. Mm-hmm. In Minnesota, which did it have an? Was there an established opera company in the Twin Cities at that time? There was one. The St. Paul Opera was mm-hmm. here and had been going for many years, mm-hmm. and it did traditional operas, mm-hmm. um, and they would use local singers for chorus and you know bit parts, mm-hmm. and then would bring in the leading artists. Mm-hmm. And and Severn uh, so made this note about the the a company of full time singers versus the original community singer approach that Martin Friedman had, had right. suggested. What's the difference? Well, then when it became a company of singers, it was eight singers, and the idea then was to, was to either find operas in which all eight could perform mm-hmm. or commission new operas for the eight singers and then there was also a time during the year, uh, a lot of exploration about, uh, for instance, how do you improvise when you sing? And so there were classes that the singers had in things like that. We did a lot of special appearances for, you know, conventions and, and social organizations who, and out in the community. Who taught the classes, the improvisation classes? I did. I taught with Wesley. We taught. But at this point, both of you are very young men. Yeah. Wesley had come out of Yale. He didn't, hadn't run an opera company up to that point. Neither had you. How did you teach an improv class to a bunch of opera singers? Well, I mean, I knew my styles. I knew what Baroque music had to be, what Renaissance, what Romantic, what Classical had to be. So knowing that, I could improvise at the piano Mm -hmm. in these styles and work with singers for them to understand how did melody how what how did melodic lines work Mm -hmm. uh in that style uh how did you make transpositions and keys uh etc and obviously with these singers some people were just phenomenally quick like Vern Sutton at being able to do this, and some for some it was a much slower and um, more difficult process. Okay, um, th- so you you decide you are you have a, a, a rare position 
you're in the Minnesota Orchestra, you've got a job, you're married. Uh, I think I'm on, I'm alive in you, the world. You were alive at And this you were point. looking at yes. purchasing a house in the 6970. Why did you say yes when John and Wesley called up? Why would I not say yes? What a great opportunity this was. I, I mean, I wanted to be a conductor in, and I wanted to be a conductor in whatever it could be, whether it was opera or choral mm. or symphonic. And this was a great opportunity to combine both the vocal and the symphonic. Cool. The first opera I did was an opera by the English composer Harrison Whistle called Punch and Judy. A really um, atonal, tough, difficult opera to coach and uh, to learn, but it was a great way to plunge in. And uh, I also remember the... Why did you pick that one? Or who picked it? Uh, John and Wesley before I arrived. Oh. They had chosen it. And the New York Times came out and just gave it a rave review. Wow. I, I, I didn't know that usually they didn't come out for things, but they were there. So yeah, you, you talked about the Burt Whistle piece. What else did you produce in those early years? What other operas were you were you, and and who made the choice? Did you recommend them? Did John or Wesley recommend them? Uh, we we really kind of worked together, John Wesley and I, to see what uh, what operas did we want to produce and what uh, fit the singers' voices. Mm-hmm. Now in those early years. Um, we did mostly contemporary operas. We did an opera by Karl Orff called Die Kluge, The Wise Woman and the King. We did uh, an opera, well, we, we had, they had, before I was there, they had done an Argento opera called The Mask of Angels. And when I was there, we also uh, then started to commission. And the very first commission 
after I was there was Conrad Sousa. Mm -hmm. And and none of us knew him, Mm -hmm. but I'd read about him and I knew some of his choral music. So I suggested that we get in touch with him. Mm -hmm. And so we met him in New York and suggested that he composed this opera called Transformations. And we uh, told him what the eight voices were. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Conrad was brilliant. And so he took the voices and composed this amazing opera, which has now been done all over the USA Mm -hmm. and in Europe. And it's a fantastic piece. And and you was Postcard from Morocco uh, a Postcard from Morocco happened at the same time. Okay. Postcard from Morocco may have been before the Sousa, I think it was, mm-hmm. but we did Postcard, and again, that was written for the eight singers oh. that were in the com- in this. Argento. Yes, Argento did that opera. Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting experience because then I moved from my role as a student of Professor Argento to now a performer and interpreter of the music of Dominic Argento. So, <laughs> you know, this man that I just hugely admired. Right. And so it just took on a different thing, which then over succeeding years led it led to him becoming a very personal and close friend. Yeah. Um, it, 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 El Capitan? Yes. Then we did John Philip Sousa's uh, operetta. Mm-hmm. And again, operetta, because there was spoken in that. We did El Capitan. Um, we then moved, we were still in the early years also at the Guthrie, uh, the old Guthrie. Mm-hmm. And we moved into some of the um, standard repertoire. We did Marriage of Figaro mm-hmm. there. You did Popea. We did Coronation of Popea, mm-hmm. right. And uh, we also, uh, we did a... Uh, Robert Ward opera called Claudia Laguerre, mm-hmm. um, and we did uh, also uh, Mother of Us All. We did yes, we did. Of course, we toured that the Virgil Thompson's opera, The Mother of Us All. Here's a question. So I was also talking with Janice Hardy um, and uh, Alto, and so the question is, how? Did, her question for you is, how did the newest opera in the world come about? Well. We, Wesley had this idea of having an opera where, I mean, he always loved to kind of figure out some new uh, twist mm-hmm. to operas that would make the audience, which in those days was only aware of, you know, standard opera style. He wanted an opera in which the audience would, by means of a big wheel that spun, uh, you, the audience would choose what was going to be the the um, scene, what was going to be the plot, uh, what was going to be uh, the the solution for it. I mean, there were all kinds of things the audience voted on, hmm. and what style each scene right. was going to be in, and then the singers. Had they were kind of appointed who was going to be the leading lady, who was going to be the leading man, who was going to be the villain, yeah. <laughs> who whatever, and then they had to take on these characters, and of course everything was uh, was totally improvised, the music and the words, because they had to make it all up. How many performances of the newest opera in the world did you do? 
oh, we must have done several dozen performances, and people just went crazy for it. And each one was unique. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Always and, different. And, and so Vern remembers that it was, you guys did it at that little Cedar Village, that tiny stage right. with, with no real dressing rooms and a toilet that couldn't be flushed during the performances. This is true. This is true. <laughs> and in the wintertime, we're talking cold yeah. in there. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, that theater is still there, by the way, on Cedar Avenue. Yeah. What, what, what were the challenges in, in, in moving from you know, the Guthrie to the Cedar and doing all of this uh, rather diverse mix of rap? Mm-hmm. Well, the challenges, certainly, of course, um, a big one. At first, not so much because the Walker supported it. But once it went alone, mm-hmm. independent, then, of course, just funding. And let's face it. There were a lot of people that did not wish to see a contemporary opera. They only wanted to see Verdi or Mozart. And uh, so, you know, finding the right audience for this was another big challenge that Mm -hmm. happened. But um, it really, we found that there were so many operas that we wanted to do. So the big challenge was how do we decide which ones to do that make a really interesting season and uh, mm-hmm. and keep these eight singers and sometimes extra that mm-hmm. were added. How to keep them? You know, doing something like we did Three Penny Opera yeah. of Kurt Weill. So doing an opera like that, um, and just finally finding a way that we could continue to commission, which is always a thrill because there's just nothing like having. It's like someone making you a new suit, and it's like. This was made for me. Mm, An yeah. opera is made for those singers. Mm-hmm. What? So was that the mission then at the time? What was Minnesota Opera's mission in the early days? The mission really was to give opera a contemporary look, both in the choice of repertoire, in the way it was staged, and in the way uh, it looked um, visually. Mm-hmm. And so wonderful designers came in uh, that we had. We had Tanya Moisewicz, we had Robert Israel, mm-hmm. we had Robert Indiana, we had Jack Barclay. Oh, we had great people coming in. Uh, so it was exciting to see these new ideas about how an opera could look. Visually, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's a parallel. When I think about um, Silicon Valley and I think about our, our current culture of startups and there's a lot of energy here in the Twin Cities around startups. But if you think back to 67, 69, 70 and that era, Center Opera, Minnesota Opera was a startup. It was. And um, what was your, 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 your rationale for A, the, the, the core idea, the differentiating idea of a company of singers? What, why? Because you were investing in people and it meant that you knew who they were and you could help um, broaden their career and their style by not just hiring them for one opera and then they're gone, but saying, oh, I see you have this really wonderful personality. Let's see if we can bring that even to more life and vocally mm-hmm. give them more challenges and more ideas of what they could do so that you'd see, you use Janice as an example. Here mm-hmm. was this young 19-year-old woman and she just really blossomed. In the, she was a natural actor, 
no question. And she had this gorgeous mezzo voice. But over the years, you could see that as she did more roles, she just found wonderful way in which to um, um, broaden her her personality on stage mm-hmm. and how she communicated with an audience, both vocally and visually. So how is, again, for context with the folks listening, the approach you were taking, the company, this, this, and doing newer works and not the traditional, how, how did that differ? How, how is Minnesota opera different from the rest of the opera industry in America at that time? Well, I mean, there were other places that were starting to do this, but mostly because uh, many opera companies did uh, what I would call traditional staging, which meant walk on stage, stand, sing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if there was someone else on stage that you were to be interacting with, mm-hmm. you might fling your hand toward them. You're right. And, you know, that was a very standard procedure. Yeah. There was not a lot of of just uh, great physical mm-hmm. movement that went on. And, uh, and therefore, uh, and obviously the louder the voice, the better, yeah. because it could project in a big auditorium. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we really, I think in this company, we're also very committed not only to beautiful singing, but to fascinating staging. Mm-hmm. What gave you confidence that that could work? These singers, they did it. They knew how to, they knew how to make it work, and you were just charmed, and you were thrilled, and you were moved by what they did on stage. To see Vern Sutton do Postcard from Morocco, and to see this character, which begins very kind of innocently at the beginning, and 90 minutes later, the character has just become totally demolished. And the way your heart went out to him, the way he could portray that, I'll never forget it. Are you passed over? And does your wife talk in her sleep? Then get our nearest agent to tell you about soups for success. You owe it 
to yourself to learn about beans and how this delicious food is the sure way to the body. Beautiful. We will mail you a fascinating booklet, Beans for Beauty, by return of post if you send us your address. Talking with some some business people and thinking about uh, t- thinking about this center opera, Minnesota Opera, as a startup, uh, and it's a business. How did you raise money? In the beginning, the money was through the budget of the Walker Art Center. Mm-hmm. They so I don't have a clue how it was that it was part of their budget. But once you split, once we split. Then John Ludwig was the business manager. We had a small staff. Gail Sharp was mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And uh, we had to begin, you know, raising the money that would pay for these productions. Were, and you, were you part of the fundraising effort? Sometimes. If I knew someone or if they wanted me to come and be enthusiastic about the opera mm-hmm. we were doing, Wesley the same, then we would go and talk to people and hope that they would become interested. Obviously... There were several people who were very generous, great supporters of the opera. Uh, there was a couple, Alice and Justin Smith, long deceased, who were very, very supportive of it. But there were, and then there was an opera um, association mm-hmm. that really helped to kind of go out in the community and uh, generate a lot of interest in what the opera was doing. One of those people at the early days was your neighbor, Joan Caldwell, who was there from the beginning. And so we had a lot of great, uh, wonderful just support from people who cared about what the opera was doing. Mm -hmm. And and so how did you go about recruiting a board of directors? Uh, John did that, John Ludwig. And uh, uh, again, it was a combination of finding people with business savvy and others who loved the idea of what the mission of Minnesota Opera was all about. Hmm. Okay. Um, so while you were at Minnesota Opera, um, you, you mentioned this earlier, the group did school performances, and, and Vern notes that they were called Opera Without Elephants. Right. Scenes and arias that mixed new and old music and varied stagings. Um, what was Opera Without Elephants all about? It was the idea of going to young people and saying, Opera is cool, and we're going to show you. So you might, for instance, go out into a school and um, take um, an opera scene, and you say, we're going to sing. Let's just say you might do a little bit of Hansel and Gretel, Mm -hmm. and then doing that, and then say to them, but you know, there are other ways you could act out this opera with the same singing. And now can you all give us some ideas? And these kids would then come up with ideas about how it could be done differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the singers would just do it. Mm. And it was like, wow, opera is alive. It's a living, living thing. Or um, you might talk about staging. So you'd say, 
here's one way to do an opera, and Janice would sing an aria, absolutely rigid, not moving. And then you'd say, but there's other ways to do that aria, and you'd bring someone from the audience up to kind of help move Janice's arms or push her yeah. as she was singing and say, you see, you can, I mean, whatever you, you tried to do to make the young people realize opera was cool. Yeah, and, and accessible. And, and accessible, and, yeah, absolutely. What did, what did that teach you going out and doing that sort of work? It teaches you, first of all, that you need to have huge trust in your audience. They are smarter than you may think. They are creative. They are interested in ideas. And uh, it just taught me, of course, as always, that you don't know if you don't try. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Renaissance Man. As I've said before the show, part two of Philip's take on the world of opera will be released very soon. If you've subscribed to this podcast, you'll get the next episode automatically. Got a question Philip can answer? Please send us an email to renaissancemanpodcast at gmail.com. That's renaissancemanpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you, and thanks for listening. Along with the tumble